Hello, I'm Dr. Mitchell Weinstein of the University of Pennsylvania, and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Ilko Vedix on behalf of the Education Committee of the Society for Neuroscience and Anesthesiology and Critical Care. Dr. Vedix is a professor of neurology and the head of the Division of Critical Care Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He has written over 550 articles on neurocritical care and over 70 articles on brain death and organ donation alone, including the textbook Brain Death by Oxford University Press. Today, we'll be talking about the very important topic of brain death determination. Welcome, Dr. Vedix, and thank you for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Dr. Vedix, what exactly is brain death? Well, brain death is, uh, as we know, only a small proportion of patients who had a unsurvival brain injury. And we define it as largely as a clinical examination. So you have patients who come in with a catastrophic uh, neurologic injury who has lost most of their brain uh, stem reflexes, who then go on to lose all their brain stem reflexes and become apneic. And uh, with that, that is a point of no return, a moment where uh, it is clear that there, that there will be no change in the neurological examination. Also, these patients also at that time would lose their blood pressure and would need blood pressure support. Some of them will develop already fatal uh, cardiac arrhythmias and they become in general medically unstable, largely due to their hypotension and possibly also uh, diabetes insipidus, uh, depending on the cause of catastrophic injury. So it is a sort of a, a situation in which the, the entire brainstem stops functioning. And when that happens, we can start thinking about doing a more formal examination uh, that would uh, declare a patient brain dead. There's a clear dividing line between uh, having some brainstem reflexes preserved and having all brainstem reflexes absent. Patients who do have a catastrophic injury but can potentially still be treated are the ones that still have brainstem reflexes left. And uh, so, for example, in a patient with a cerebellar hematoma, there may be a lot of injury to the brainstem and compression of the brainstem, and by removing that cerebellar hematoma, the brainstem reflexes can return, but not if all brainstem reflexes have disappeared. There's clearly, we've identified over many decades, uh, that, that is a uh, clearly dividing line between loss of all brain, uh, irreversible loss of all brain function, and uh, we call that brain death. Wasn't there a difference between countries with concept of a, a whole brain death or just a death of the brainstem itself? There has been some differences, but uh, there are not real differences. I think what happened in the late 70s and 80s is that the British decided that if you have a, a large supratentorial lesion, so a hemispheric lesion, that it will eventually lead to brain stem death. And that basically the crux of the matter is whether the brain stem survives or not. And therefore, in their known British practicality, basically what we're doing clinically and what we're doing uh, in our examination is to look at the brainstem and the, the loss of function of the brainstem as a final determinator. So in the overwhelming proportion of patients, it is a, a supratentorial lesion that then compresses the brainstem and damages the brainstem. And there are, uh, of course, situations, although they are exceedingly rare, in which there's a primary brainstem lesion, such as in a, a pontine hemorrhage or a large infarct, in which the brainstem is damaged, the, the hemispheres are not damaged or can become secondary damage due to an acute hydrocephalus, for example. So those patients only have their brainstem injured, but not their hemispheres. And in that situation, the situation in the U.S. was that that 
was was felt problematic. Although there is basically you cannot be conscious uh, or even recover when you have uh, your loss of all your brain stem. So it's a moot point really whether there's a difference between a primary brain stem death or a death of the whole brain. I think we've all uh, identified over the years that our focus should be on the brainstem alone. That's where the, the, the changes uh, are coming. And that also will lead eventually to apnea and loss of uh, hemodynamic stability. Who would you consider qualified to perform the clinical examination on someone who would be considered being brain dead? Like uh, frequently there are many community hospitals and other hospitals where you may not necessarily have a neurocritical care specialist available. No, and, uh, and even a neurologist or an intensivist may not have a significant experience in seeing these patients. I would think that it will be very difficult to, to see a lot of patients who uh, you declare brain death again because it's a small proportion of patients who uh, have been declared brain death. And so to build an experience is going to be very difficult for every, for every physician. If you are working in a neurointensive care unit and you uh, see all patients that are brain death, you can build up some experience. In our uh, hospital, we have our neurointensive care service see all patients uh, do all their declarations in, the, in all units, and then you're able to build up some experience, but it's for everyone, of course, difficult. I would think that anybody who would just follow the guidelines and would carefully follow all uh, steps to, in the determination brain health would be able to do that. And it does not necessarily need to have, it'd have to be a neurologist or a neurointensivist. In fact, the pediatric guidelines do um, do ask for pediatric intensivists, and uh, but also pediatric neurologists. It, I don't think it matters all that much. It's going to be very difficult for everyone, for anyone, to make a to come to a certain experience because it's not that common. And I think in general, throughout the world, I, there are very few uh, countries that specifically tell, tell hospitals who should perform it. There's, a, of course, a discussion whether fellows can do it or residents can do it. I would think a staff members should do it, and, but fellows and uh, residents can be at the bedside and see, or a resident can do it and supervised by a staff member. Again, uh, the biggest issue is... It's very difficult to uh, see, as one uh, physician alone, to see more than five or six patients a year. It's that uncommon. So uh, if you, you're referring to the, uh, those guidelines that were posted by the American Academy of Neurology back in 2010, are you not? Right. So what are some of the things that uh, you would need to look out for before performing the exam? And, uh, and roughly, could you go over some of the, the highlights of the exam or pitfalls that we may come into? And basically, there are several important steps to take. Uh, first, we'll have to determine that do we have an unsurvivable brain injury in which uh, no treatment uh, is uh, feasible or possible, and the patient uh, should have several uh, should have loss of several brainstem reflexes. Then it's, the next step is to eliminate uh, any confounders and make sure that the patient has a normal temperature and has no other uh, lingering drugs on board. And some tox screen uh, might be necessary uh, to determine that. I think most of the time should be spent to figure out whether the patient really can be examined without any confounding issues. And this also, of course, uh, involves uh, the careful evaluation of laboratory abnormalities. So when that's been done and there is uh, no confounder and there is evidence on CT scan of a, a major injury that has resulted in a loss of all brain uh, stem reflexes, a more formal examination will be performed that would be, uh, involve testing of all brain stem reflexes and motor responses followed by preparation for the apnea test, and then proceed with a, a CO2 uh, challenge. 
And after that has been performed, the patient uh, can be declared. And there is no need to proceed with a confirmatory test if all, uh, if all these uh, steps can be undertaken and we can proceed from one step to the next step and can then declare the patient uh, dead at the time uh, that uh, apnea was uh, confirmed uh, by a rise uh, in uh, CO2. The guidelines feel that uh, one careful examination is sufficient and a second examination is not necessary, but does recognize that there are now six, uh, there were eight, but there are now six states in the U.S. that require additional uh, confirmation by another physician. Uh, and we, we do know that uh, some hospitals can, uh, can determine that uh, an examination is confirmed by another physician. But the academy recognizes that one uh, examination should suffice and there's no need to delay the declaration of death by a second examination uh, if the first examination can be done in an appropriate manner. The academy guideline also has put down a checklist of about 25 assessments uh, to declare a patient brain death which includes determination of irreversible coma to examine the CT scan carefully and then CT scan should explain coma. There should be no uh, CNS depressant drug effect. Uh, there should be no evidence of any residual paralytic agents or any other sedatives. There should be no absence. There should be absence of severe acid-based disturbances or electrolyte abnormalities. A normal or near normal temperature, normal or near normal systolic blood pressure, and no spontaneous respiration. And then proceed with basically testing of the brainstem reflexes, uh, pupil reflexes, corneal reflexes, oculocephalic reflexes, and oculovestibular reflexes with caloric testing, followed by um, examination of a potential mimicry, gag and cough reflex, and uh, examination of a motor response. When the, that is determined. We proceed with the apnea test that is basically preparing the patient for disconnection from the ventilator and pre-oxygenating the patient with an FIA2 of 1 and have a baseline blood gas of a PO2 that is more than 200 nanometers mercury and a PCO2 that's in the normal range, followed by disconnection, placing an oxygen catheter at the carina and then observe for about 8 to 10 minutes that would be required to have a PCO2 rise of 20 torr above a normal baseline and determine brain apnea if the PCO2 has reached 60 millimeters of mercury or 20 torr above baseline. The moment that we have a PCO2 of that range, the, the time that we consider at the time of death, and that's been noted in the chart. So again, the overwhelming majority of time will be with preparing for the examination to make sure that there are no confounders or any other uh, issues that could uh, potentially mimic brain death, and that needs to be the most time spent uh, before uh, the examination is basically a short uh, assessment uh, of brainstem reflexes. What's your opinion about getting confirmatory tests or other types of lab tests to determine brain death? Well, I think the basic principle should be to have a reliable clinical examination. And if you don't feel comfortable by doing it, then someone else should do it. If you feel comfortable with it and you would like to have it confirmed by someone else, there's nothing wrong with that, to do that, as long as it does not significantly delay determinant of brain death and, of course, uh, discussions on organ donation. A confirmatory test is typically done if the apnea test cannot be performed for a multitude of reasons, mostly because the patient's pulmonary edema or is uh, hemodynamically unstable. And uh, the confirmatory test that is uh, probably the most definitive will be a cerebral angiogram. 
a CTA has both false positive and false negatives. Uh, there are many, many of the confirmatory tests uh, are potentially problematic and can in no way really replace the clinical examination. So it's, it was a, it's not really confirmatory. It's an ancillary test. The tests are uh, not 100%, and I would feel always very uncomfortable in declaring a brain a patient brain death if I would do it on the basis of a confirmatory test alone. So it's not unusual that we uh, would do a confirmatory test and the test is, is not confirmatory, meaning there isn't a cranial flow or there's an ambiguity on the examination. And then we would then proceed with a DCD uh, protocol if that's uh, if there's consent for that. So I think we in in our experience, I think we've used an, uh, an ancillary test maybe one in the last uh, two or three years or so. It's very uncommon. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Vidic, for agreeing to speak with us today. Thank you. My pleasure.